Parashas Nitzavim continues the, the warnings about the terrible things that are going to befall the Jewish people if we do not listen to what Hashem says, idol worship, other sins. We had the dire klalos in yesterday's landing. And then Parashas Nitzavim talks about, again, the, it begins that people have ideas that they're going to not listen to God, they're going to worship idols, they're going to, they're going to not behave correctly, the terrible things are going to happen. It'll be uh, a vivid picture the Torah gives. The land will be like the overturning of Sodom and Amorah, that God overturned in his fury. The nations will say, what happened here? What did they do? What, 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 what happened that there should be such destruction, such, such punishment here? And the answer will be, they abandoned the covenant of Hashem, and they worshipped idols, and uh, Hashem became furious with them and, and made all the destruction that you see here. And then the Pasuk, and then the Pasuk summarizes, the Pasuk concludes a somewhat uh, obscure verse. It says, Hidden things are for Hashem our God. So hidden things are for Hashem. Revealed things, that's, uh, that's for us, and we have to do whatever the, whatever the Torah says. So what is meant by the hidden things and the revealed things? What is the connection to the, the previous narrative? So the most, uh, perhaps the best known interpretation of this verse is the one that Chazal followed, the one that Rashi adopts in his comments to the Pasuk, and that is that there's going to be terrible destruction for not listening to Hashem, for worshiping idols, and the Pasuk is telling us here this is not just punishment that will be visited upon those who actually sinned, this is actually punishment that will befall that there's responsibility here for those who did not sin but who could have prevented others from sinning. And the Torah qualifies that and it says, well, it depends. If people sin privately, if people sin where others don't know, then obviously it's not fair. There's no reason to blame those who, who, who didn't know and couldn't stop them. So anistaros, private sins are not the responsibility of the body politic as a whole, but vahaniglos, but revealed sins, sins that are committed openly, we then, the rest of the nation, we the Jewish people have a responsibility, have a responsibility to stop that and, the, and, the, and we'll be punished as well for not stopping, for not putting a stop to these types of, to these types of public sins. That's Rashi's pshat and that is the Ibn Ezra's pshat as well. Ibn Ezra certainly is not always committed to, if, if everyone can please uh, mute yourself when not, in, uh, when not talking please. Um, Ibn Ezra as well, this is how he learned. He's, he's someone who is not always committed to the interpretations of Chazal, but nevertheless, he interprets, the, he interprets the Pasuk the same way as Rashi, the same way as Chazal. He says that the, when it says Hanistaros, that means someone who worships idols, Baseser, and people don't know. Because Hashem will have to punish him. We, we don't know, we can't do anything about it. But if it was Bigaloi, if it was public, if it was revealed, then we have to do something about it. That's our responsibility, to do what the Torah says, to punish the idolaters, to, to, to stamp it out, and to punish those who worship idols. So that is, uh, that is probably the, the best-known chat, Chazal, Gemara, Madrashim, Rashi, Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra himself brings another chat. He says, some learn that the... Niglos lanul vanenu, that our responsibility, we, our affair is only the revealed, the surface of the Torah, the, the concrete uh, obligations and commandments of the Torah, but the nistaros, is the, the nistaros is the deeper meanings of the Torah, 
and, uh, and, and, and that apparently is not our affair. Ibn Ezra doesn't like this shot. He says it has no connection to the previous narrative. It's, it's, uh, it has no context there, he says. And, but anyway, the, the Ibn Ezra agrees to the shot of Rashi that the Torah is telling you, I hold the sinners responsible. I hold everyone responsible for not stopping sinners if they can, if they know about it, but not, uh, not the sins that were performed, uh, committed in, in private. Ramban, the Ramban uh, brings this chat, but he, uh, the, the Ramban says this is what the commentaries say, this is what the Midrash says, the Gemara says. However, he himself thinks that the Derech Hapshat is different, different from Chazal, different from Rashi. He says what he thinks the Derech Hapshat is, is that the th- hidden things means hidden from us, that things that we do that we don't even know about, that we're shogig, that, that, that we, we didn't do it consciously or, or, or with, with intent, he says, those things are, we're not responsible for, Hanisteros, Lashem Elokeinu, that God will excuse us for, that Shigios Miyavin, Ministeros Nakeni, that uh, that's, uh, Hashem knows about them, but they're not any concern of ours, we don't have to do tshuva for them, there's no avon, there's no chet. However, Haniglos, the things that were open and explicit, that we understood what we were doing, those are the types of averus for which we will be, we will be punished. Again, Ramban, of course, says that you do need a tshuva for a shogig as well. We've discussed this in the past. The, the Torah in Vayikra says you bring carbon chatas for a shogig. Ramban himself discusses why. He says perhaps because you should have been more careful, perhaps because it creates some kind of damage to the soul. But whatever it is, the, here the Ramban just says that if, if you have, if, if there are shigios, maybe like an ones, something that's completely not your fault, those things, Hashem, that's uh, Hashem's concern, but he won't, he won't, he, he won't uh, visit any punishment for that on you. But the Haniglos, but the revealed things, uh, the, the things that were clear and obvious and unquestionably sinful and your fault, those are the things that Hashem will punish us, punish us for. Ramban infers this from Targum Unklus as well. So that's another shot that Nisteros is a kind of unusual form, unusual expression for Shogig or Ones and... Uh, Haniglos refers to mazid, deliberate sins. That's the distinction the Pasuk is making here. Rambam, in a completely different context, in passing, Rambam mentions this Pasuk as well and gives some insight as to how he understood it. Rambam is talking about the laws of obeying prophets. The Torah tells us when prophets tell us what to do, we're supposed to obey them. But false prophets, we're not supposed to obey. We're supposed to punish them and so on. And how do we know the difference between you know, true prophets and false prophets? So the, the, the Torah talks about an os and a moface, they'll perform signs. And Rambam points out that the, the signs are not really foolproof, that the, first of all, even if someone performs a sign, people all over the place perform signs and miracles and so on. The Catholic Church makes you a saint only after they document, I think, a couple of uh, miracles that you do. So all kinds of people do signs and miracles. Rambam says that's not sufficient for us to conclude that someone's a Navi, we have to combine that with the, he has to have the character and refutation of someone who we think is ra'i for nevuah, suitable for prophecy, and chachma, and righteous conduct, and so on. And even that, the Rambam says, after all that, after his, uh, after his character and after his oath, he says, at the end of the day, it's not foolproof. The system is not 100%, uh, 100% accurate, he says. You're going to have these uh, false positives. So he says, nevertheless, the Torah commands us, this is the best we can do, this is the system the Torah puts into place, the Torah commands us to obey someone who meets these criteria in terms of having a, a stellar character and he performs an ostensible os. And the Rambam, and the Rambam says, 
That's what the Torah tells us to do, and, and the analogy he gives, the, the mushal he gives, the Torah tells us to believe two witnesses. Possible, eyewitness testimony is not foolproof. Today we don't even believe it's the best kind of testimony you can have, but the Torah does, but nevertheless, it's not foolproof, the Torah knows that. Nevertheless, the, our duty is to follow the rules as, as best as we can, and Rambam says that's what the Torah means when the Torah says, we are empowered and obligated to act based on the rules of evidence the Torah sets forth. That's the best we can do. We have to act based on that. And at some point, we know it's possible that that's not the, the, the ultimate reality, but we have to work with the, we have to work in, in a legal system, in a halachic system. We have to work with the best evidence that we have, which is eyewitness testimony, which is the os and the mofes of the prophet. And that's how the Ram understands this pasuk, that our job in, in following the Torah is to work with the, the, best, uh, the best evidence we have, even though it's not absolutely foolproof. So that's another perspective on this pasuk. It refers to proof and epistemology rather than sin, but it means that the Torah expects us to, to operate based on the best evidence that we have in various halakhic contexts. And that is how the... That's how the Rambam, at least in this context, maybe this is drush, I'm not sure, but the Rambam seems to be using it as chat. This is how he understood the pasuk. Again, what would be the connection to the rest of the... Like Ibn Ezra asked, what's the connection to the story about Avodah and Gophrus from Melach? What does that have to do with the rules of evidence in court? I'm not sure. But the, anyway, that is how Rambam understands this pasuk, at least in this context. But as we've said, the, the dominant shot, I think the shot most people are familiar with, as well as the dominant shot in the commentaries, is the shot of Chazal in this case, that Hanistaros Lashem Elokeinu means that we collectively are responsible for the sins of individuals, only if they are publicly known, but not if, it's, if we don't know, we don't know. This is an ethos which is somewhat at odds with uh, the, modern, the modern Western notion. We, have, we tend to operate, uh, modern people tend to operate more with a live and let live mentality that as long as you're not hurting anybody else, uh, your private morality is your own business, nobody but, your, nobody but yourself. This is not the attitude of the Torah. The Torah, certainly within the Jewish community, the Torah very much does not accept this. The Torah says that it is everyone's business to, uh, to enforce proper conduct on the part of everyone else. And this is indeed a duty that, that we have to, to issue tochacha, to issue reproof, and to the extent that we can, to actually enforce the, the following of the Torah. We discussed this in the past, in this parish, in other contexts, the idea of, the idea of tochacha, of the responsibility Jews have, of arvus, of, uh, share, of shared responsibility. So I want to cover, just review some of the basic things we said in the past and, and apply this to some cases that we uh, apply it to some different angles that we didn't cover, have not covered previously. Can I just ask you, the pasuk that you started out with is said during a tahara. Did you come up with any connection why, why that's the case? Anistaros l'shem I didn't. I did not know that. Did not recall that. Is, the question is that we say this during a tara of uh, when when a person is niftar. We say this while preparing the body. So, is there, according to any of these explanations, can, can we can we find a connection between this and the the ritual of the chevra kadisha? I don't know offhand. I'd have to, I have to think about it. If I, if I come up with anything, I'll have to get back to you. But I'm not sure offhand. Interesting. So the, the classic discussion, one of the classic discussions at least, of the, the idea that we have shared responsibility, that we are responsible for each other's sins, is a Gemara in Shabbos. As, as is often the case, the, the discussion of, uh, of, 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 of some fairly powerful theological, religious ideas starts from the, the rather mundane. The, Gemara, the Mishnah in Shabbos is discussing 
the laws of Hotzav, carrying on Shabbos, there are all kinds of accessories, uh, appurtenances that people, men, women, animals are, are, are allowed to wear on Shabbos, not allowed to wear on Shabbos. Some of the things you're not allowed to wear constitute actual carrying. Some of them are exerous. You might take them off and carry them and so on. All kinds of technical rules. So one of the rules the Mishnah gives is that a cow is not allowed to go out uh, in a public space in Rosh Hashanah, not let it go outside in a Ritzua Shabain Karnah. Now let it go out with a strap or a ribbon between its horns. Then the Mishnah says, Paraso Shalabr Azariah did go out like that. It was wrong, Chacham objected, and he violated this halacha. The Gemara clarifies it was not actually his cow, it was his neighbor's cow, but we call it his cow, we, we blame him as if he were the one responsible because he should have protested. He should have objected, he didn't, and therefore it's you, you did the Averis. Maybe she did it too, but you did it. You, Rabbi Elazar, you, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, you are the one whose cow went out. In, in morally speaking, it's yours. You're responsible. The Gemara goes on. The Gemara says that anyone who, anyone who has the power to object over the members of his household, their conduct, he's punished, responsible for them. Anyone who's influential, influential enough to be responsible for the people of his city, he's responsible for their sins. Anyone who is a... Uh, Today, today we talk about influencers in a different sense, I guess. I'm not sure, if, I'm not sure how many influencers are using their uh, influential power to uh, morally improve their followers, but if you are an influencer who has influence over Kala Olam Kulo, the entire world, then you, have a du- then you have a duty to do so, and you'll be responsible for the conduct of the entire world. The Gemara goes on with a terrible story about the Horban. It says that there was, uh, the Hashem was having a debate with Midas Adin, Hashem was having this allegory, presumably, but Hashem is having a discussion with the, with the Midas Adin about whether to kill everyone, to issue the Gzeira of the Khurban, so everyone shall be annihilated, or only the Rishayim. So the Midas Adin keeps saying, everyone. Hashem keeps saying, well, there are tzaddikim here. And eventually, Midas Adin wins the argument, Hashem concedes, because Midas Adin says, yes, there are tzaddikim, but they should have protested. They should have objected to the heinous conduct of the Rishayim. They didn't do so, and they're going to be annihilated as well, and Hashem is forced to concede that there'll be general destruction even of, of the tzaddikim because they failed to protest the, the Rishayim. And this is the general rule. As, as we've discussed previously, of much of the discussion in real-world situations, obviously, reasonably enough, revolves around the question of are they likely to listen the Gemara itself says, in this context of the Chorban, they wouldn't have listened, Hashem said. He, he, Hashem tried to justify the inaction of the Tadikim. The Rishon wouldn't have listened, Hashem said. So Midas Adin said, well, they didn't know that. They should have tried, at least, even, even if it's true that objectively Hashem knew they wouldn't have listened. And that was the, the damning argument that Hashem said, they're all desert, they all have to be annihilated. So this is the discussion the post can have of, in real-world scenarios, when do you assume that the... When maybe they'll listen and you have to speak up, and when do you assume they won't listen? Every, every one of us, when we, see, uh, when we see relatives, friends, co-workers who are not following Torah mitzvahs, we generally don't say, you're not allowed to do that. You put down that sandwich, just get out of your car on Shabbos. Most of us are not in the habit of doing this on a regular basis, and ultimately I think the reason is, in some sense, that the, the calculus is that it will likely be uh, pointless at best and counterproductive at worst. You know, you, your neighbor who has not kept Shabbos for 20 years, is not going to be inspired to do so when you tell him, start keeping Shabbos, and if anything, it'll, uh, it'll get him upset, it'll ruin your relationship, and presumably, and, and, and on, some level, on some level, that's essentially the argument that we're pretty sure 
you know, there are always success stories of Kiruv and outreach, but in general, uh, the idea is that uh, at some point uh, the halacha is realistic and doesn't expect you to, uh, doesn't, respect, doesn't expect you to cut off your nose to spite your face, and if it's pointless and counterproductive, you don't do it, and that's why the debates, of course, are often demonstrations in Eretz Yisrael about Shemir as the Shabbos and so on. The debates sometimes revolve around this point. Is it likely to be successful? Is it likely not to be successful? Is it likely to be counterproductive? But the principle, though, the principle is clear from the it's, uh, it, the, the rabbinic tradition is unequivocal. We do have a responsibility to our fellow man. To the extent that we can, we have an obligation to try to prevent our, prevent our fellow man from sinning. I, w- I want to cover, for the duration of our talk, I want to cover, discuss some of the rules of a, a particular angle of this question. Classic Telchacha, the kind the Gemara is talking about, the kind the Psukim pr- presumably are referring to, is a case where the, the sinner is doing something deliberately. He knows what he's doing. He, doesn't, he, does, he, does, he does not want to follow the Torah's laws. And you should tell him, you should, you have to, you need to. And, 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 that, and, and that's, that's the discussion. That was the discussion at the time of the Korban. The idolaters were not just uh, accidental. They obviously knew exactly what they were doing. And uh, nevertheless, the, the, Gemara, the, the Gemara says the tzaddikim should have protested this. What's the halach in a case where someone is committing a sin and doesn't really realize that it's a sin at all. He simply doesn't know the facts. He thinks the sandwich he's holding is kosher, and it's really non-kosher. Do you have an obligation, when, when do you, when don't you, do you have an obligation to step over to him and say, let's say the person who does keep the Torah, he is someone who generally believes in, the, believes in following halacha, so should you tell him that what he's doing is usher if he may not be aware of it? Again, in a case where you know he wants to know, you know he's going to be very thankful and grateful to you for telling him someone who would uh, lose sleep over having eaten non-kosher, uh, that's a no-brainer. Obviously, you should tell him. Why shouldn't you tell him? He'll, he'll be happy. It's, uh, you, you stopped him from doing an avera. That, that's clearly a win-win. Obviously, to the extent that it's a question, it, the question is where it will cause grave inconvenience, grave difficulty. The person may, may resent it, may, even if he's someone who does follow halacha. He, he may not follow it once he's on the verge of doing it. One of the classic versions of this question is an Eruv. The city has an Eruv, the Eruv is up, people assume it's up, people are going around carrying. Shabbos afternoon, you find out that the Eruv is down. The Eruv has, a, a tree has fallen, something has broken on the Eruv. The, the Eruv is down. Should those who know, should they go around publicly announcing it, telling people privately? It's happened here, it's happened here in Silver Spring, it's happened, uh, it happens all the time. I mean, not all the time, fortunately, but it's... Uh, it is a classic problem with Erevin. Do you, have an ob- do you have an obligation? Is that the right thing to do, to go around telling people that the Erev is down? It will cause them inconvenience. Some of them may carry anyway. So the question is, what should you do in such a case? Does your responsibility of Haniglos, of any, any of Erev you know somebody's doing, is uh, do you have to tell them, or do you not tell them? So there are a number of different issues the Post can discuss, ranging from the practical to the to the abstract and theoretical. The first question, of course, is, is the person likely to listen to you? Again, someone who doesn't keep Shabbos at all, then obviously he doesn't even care about the Arab. There's no point in telling him the Arab is down. He, he, he carries when there's no Arab. He drives to shul. So obviously, that, that, that's, a, that's you know, the pretty much settled. You don't go around telling people that. But the question is, someone who, to some extent at least, uh, follows Orthodox halacha, does keep Shabbos to some extent, he's carrying, he thinks there's an Arab. There is no Arab right now. Should you tell the person that the Erev is down? So one thing Post can discuss right away, of course, is is he likely to, uh, to listen to you? 
So if he is not likely to listen to you, then, as we said earlier, many of these halachas of reproof hinge on the question of whether your reproof will be productive or not, or counterproductive. If he won't listen, then there is a rule that you don't have to say anything. Chazal often articulate this rule. The rule is called mutav shiyushogin valiyu mezidin. If someone is doing an Avera and not realizing it's an Avera, if you tell him you think it's likely he won't listen, and then not only is it uh, pointless, is it futile, it is also counterproductive, because now if he continues doing the Avera after he's been duly warned, now he is a Mezid, which is much more serious than before. He was a Shogik. So there is a rule that in many cases, you, in, certain, in certain cases, you do not say anything, even, even to someone who is essentially a Shomer Torah Mitzvah, if you don't think he'll listen in this particular context, then we say, Mutav Shiyu Shogin Valiyu Mezidin. So someone who you don't think will stop carrying, he'll, he'll just think, it's, uh, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm not, being, staying, I'm not you know, getting stuck in shul you know, with, with my kid because I, I can't go home. Someone who you don't think will actually listen, there is definitely an argument to be made of Mutav Shiyu Shogin Valiyu Mezidin. What is the obligation of a person who gets told that there is That's an interesting question. The question is, if, you are, if someone does tell you on Shabbos the Erev is down, should you, uh, should you believe him? So that's an interesting question. You know, normally we say, the, the question is, if it's against a chazaka, if, if there was a previous presumption the Erev was up, should you believe the person that the Erev, that the Erev was down? In general, so halacha works here on two levels. There's one question about namanus, two edim, one aid bisurim. There's another question about practically between me and the lamppost, you know the guy is probably telling the truth. If you honestly don't believe him, if you think he's uh, pulling your leg or trying to play some kind of practical joke on you, maybe that's one thing. But yeah, so it's true. If you, if you honestly don't believe him, then if you're not convinced he's telling the truth, then we have to uh, consider what the halacha would say about this. Uh, yeah, most of the posts, I think, are assuming that he would believe him, just practically, that if, if your friend tells you someone you trust, you have no reason to believe he's lying, you probably do believe him, but you're right. So the question of whether Al-Pidin, your Mechliyev, to believe someone is an interesting question, and, it, and, it, and we'll return to at least a related version of that question in a few minutes, in another context. But, so assuming, that the, assuming the person will believe you, if he won't listen, there's a strong argument to be made, you shouldn't have to tell him. The question then becomes, though, what do you do on a communal level? So you're the rabbi, you're the Erev committee, and you're the gavai in shul, so you have 100 people in the shul, 500 people in the shul. You make an announcement, you're pretty sure that there's some percentage who will listen and will stop caring. It is quite likely, you can be pretty sure, there are some percentage, hopefully a small one, who uh, will not listen, who will feel that they just can't deal with it, it's not fair, I'm stuck in shul, whatever it is, I can't do this, and uh, my plans, and will carry anyway. And then there's other people you just don't know. There's a gray earring in the middle. So the question then becomes, as a matter of public policy, what do you do? Should, if you don't tell people, then you're sacrificing those who would prefer to keep the halacha on, on, on behalf of those who, uh, this way, will be mezidin and not shogigin. The postgame, I think, generally do fail that we don't do that, 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 if it, that, that it's, not, it's not fair. These people who, it's true, we don't want them to mezidin, but it's more important to stop people from, from doing an avera who want to do the right thing. But uh, th- that's, that's a calculus that posts can have, and there are actually different opinions about whether, as a matter of public policy, a shul should announce, a community should announce that an Erev is down if they, if they know that there'll be, if they, if they think it's likely there'll be some who won't listen. There are actually shuls that go both ways, apparently, that uh, some shuls will, some, some shuls won't. I don't know what the, the dominant policy is. I remember several years ago, I'm pretty sure I recall here, 
here in KMS, I recall that there was one week where the Arab was down. I believe I heard somebody ask, you know, ask privately, ask a Rebeeler, whether he should tell people, whether he or she should tell someone else he saw carrying. Rebeeler asked, do you think he'll stop? And he said, likely not. He said, don't tell him, he said. But, uh, so that, and that's, I think, again, certainly as a, on a one-on-one, an individual uh, in, interchange, I think that's kind of a, a standard approach of the postkin. The question, the, the more difficult question is what to do as a matter of communal policy. That's a trickier question. There are, there are various arguments why you shouldn't have to tell, even if people will listen. One of the interesting arguments that's bandied about a lot this comes from a very uh, yeshivish, a very, uh, this comes from a, a, a passage of the Rabbi Yaakov Loberbaum, the Nesivas Mishpat, which is a very celebrated comment, uh, which is a somewhat provocative comment. The Nesivas Mishpat says that when someone does, we talked before about shogig, you bring a karmachatas for a shogig. The Nesivas Mishpat says this idea that shogig is an avera, less of an avera, but an avera nevertheless, you bring a karmachatas for it, that's only for an avera daraisa. The Nesiva says, for a rabbinic infraction, in Avera Midrabanan, there is no Avera at all if you do it in good faith, Peshogi. Daraisa Averas, he says, are really objective Averas. They are, they are conduct that is inherently prohibited. If you do it, Peshogi, you still did it. And, and even though it was Peshogi, and that's an Avera, and that's why we have to stop people from doing Averas. But someone, something that's only in Avera Midrabanan, the Avera is the, the nature of the mitzvah, Losasur, is to follow the Chachamim, to obey them. As long as a person acts in good faith, then objectively he has committed no Avera at all, even if it turns out that he did something that the, the rabbi said was prohibited. As long as he was in good conscience, trying, doing his best to follow the Chachamim, an Avera B'Shogeg of an Avera Midrabanan, the Nesivas HaMishpat says, does not qualify as an Avera at all. The Nesivas is not talking about telling someone or not telling someone. He's talking about, he's actually talking about a Chosh Mishpat question, about whether you have the right to ask for your money back. If you buy food that turns out to have an Oster Midrabanan, if the food is still there, of course, you give it back and you get your money back. But if you already ate it, the question is, well, you ate it, you enjoyed it, it tasted good, your, your stomach is full. Now you found out, well, I did an Oster Midrabanan. So the question is, is that grounds for asking for your money back? You're not giving the food back, you ate it already, but then you enjoyed it physically. So if it's an Oster Midrabanan, uh, then you are entitled to get your money back, at least in certain cases. It, because eating, eating something that would turned out to be Oster, you know, physically, I, it tasted good, but it's on balance, it's not a net positive, I'm not happy about it, then you get your money back. It's a drabanan, the Nesiva says, it's a drabanan b'shogig, it's not really an Avera, and therefore it is, uh, therefore it's, it's not so bad. The Nesivas can be taken to, uh, to, to an extreme, reductio ad absurdum, machronim ask. So does that mean if I have a store, I can deliberately sell my customers, I can fool them and sell them food that's treif midrabanan on the grounds that what they don't know won't hurt them because it's only midrabanan? Of course not. That's obviously not what the Nesivas means. So why not exactly? And what are the limits of the Svar of the Nesivas? Is a tricky, tricky uh, you know, legalistic question. But the point is, the Nesivas and Mishpat has this celebrated idea that an Avera midrabanan b'shogeg isn't really considered an Avera, to a certain extent at least. So therefore, some want to argue an Erev situation is typically a question of, of drabanan. We generally only make modern Erevin in scenarios where carrying is midrabanan to begin with, when there's no Erev. So therefore, even if the Erev is down, the carrying that people will be doing inadvertently is generally only Midrabanan, and if they're doing a Peshogeg, there are those who argue that it's not really an Avera, not such an Avera, you don't have to tell them. Again, it's a fairly controversial point. Many posts can disagree with the Nesivas. The Nesivas can't mean exactly what he says, or else you have the absurd idea that you can sell people tray food and fool them. So th- th- this is a fairly controversial argument. Posts can generally don't rely on this. 
by itself. But again, there are those who argue for this reason or for similar reasons that an Avera that's done in complete good faith, people don't really know what they're doing. They think they're doing, they think they're doing the right thing. They don't realize they're doing anything wrong. There, there are those who argue that that is not really such a serious Avera, and therefore, and therefore, if the Erev is down, again, if there's no harm, if people can just avoid it and, uh, and do the right thing and it's easy, I think everyone would say that you should tell them. But if people won't listen, or if it'll be extremely difficult, people have small children and they're stuck and other things, there are some postkim who, who, uh, who will condone not making a public announcement, not telling people. Although, again, I think the mainstream position is that, at least certainly on a private level, if you know someone who, who is committed to keeping halacha rigorously and you know that, uh, that they will likely do the right thing and, and avoid it, then most postkim, I think, would say that you should tell, although, again, there is some debate about it, and certainly when it comes to the, certainly when it comes to the policy question of what to do on the what to do on the community-wide scale, that's something that is less clear, and apparently the different minhagim, different minhagim uh, exist. Now, Benjamin mentioned before the question about belief. The question about belief comes up in another context. The, the context which, to the best of my knowledge, is the one where this question is most heavily discussed about whether to tell somebody that he's doing an Avera, that comes up in the following scenario. Perhaps it's surprising that this was so heavily discussed. You, you would hope that this situation comes up uh, very, very rarely. But nevertheless, there are a, a, a large number of chuvas on this question, and that is as follows. A married woman has an illicit relationship with a man other than her husband. According to halacha, the consequence of such adultery is that the couple is required to divorce. The couple are not allowed to stay married. It's not uh, waivable. Neither party has the right, even if both parties want to stay married with full knowledge of what happened, it doesn't matter. They can forgive each other in terms of you know, punishment and so on. They can do tshuva. All of that is good and appropriate, certainly, but the, the halacha is, we learned this from the parish of Sota, we learned that the halacha is that uh, if, if a woman has been unfaithful, the couple is not allowed to stay married. So there are a remarkably large number of tshuvas that deal with the scenario of a woman who has committed adultery, the husband does not know about it. The husband and wife are therefore still together. Someone else knows what happened. Either the, the paramour herself, himself knows what, knows what he did, or someone else is aware of the story. And the question is, does he have to tell the husband what happened here? Again, not just because of some abstract right to know, but should he tell the husband because the husband who remains married to his wife is inadvertently doing an isser. The woman is doing an isser as well. She's choosing to do that there by not, not telling the husband and staying married. But the, the husband is innocent and doesn't know what happened to her. The husband might very well choose to divorce her had he, if he knows what happened, either because he doesn't want to be married to her anymore or because he wants to follow the halacha, that he's not allowed to stay married with her. This was a question beginning with the Nodibi Yehuda in the 18th century and then for the, for the past you know, two or three centuries, this question was discussed repeatedly by, uh, by Poskim for, for centuries. There are other versions of the question as well. So, for example, Rav, uh, some, some cases that are less, uh, maybe even more, uh, more, uh, more uh, depressing or more um, poignant kind of, the Tzitzel Ezra has a tshuva about a, a couple who were balai tshuva. And they were married when they were not religious. They became religious together. And no adultery, the couple was faithful entirely to each other, but the, the woman was listening to a share on halacha, and she learned that a, a woman who had a relationship with a non-Jew, whether she was single or not, is not allowed to marry a Kohen. 
her husband was a Kohen. And this woman realized that when she was single, she was in college or something, that before she met her husband, before she was married to her husband, she had had a relationship with a non-Jewish man. And she realized that according to halacha, that she might have a problem staying married to her husband. And the question was again, does she have to tell, does the rabbi she confided in, does he have to tell the husband if she doesn't tell? So, so, so these questions have arisen, have arisen repeatedly, again, hopefully rarely, but these questions have arisen, uh, are discussed in a remarkable, uh, a remarkable number of different chuvas on this. Do you have to tell the, the husband or not? Again, the woman usually knows, knows what happens, so telling her, you know, that's her responsibility to do the right thing, but the question is, do you have to tell the husband? So one of the major questions is the one Benjamin raised. The husband does not actually have to believe her. He doesn't have to believe his wife. He doesn't have to believe a third party who tells him the story. al certainly in this case of Darvish Erva, the woman has no nemanus. The halacha is uh, an outside person, a lesser or two formal witnesses who testify. Uh, everything else is considered you know, rumor and has no halachic significance. The husband is under no obligation to believe, to believe the people who tell him this. However, the husband has the right to believe the people if, if he considers them credible. The husband certainly can accept what they say and can, uh, and can divorce her. It's actually complicated because after, in the modern world, after Ben Gershom prohibited unilateral divorce, the husband is not actually allowed to choose to believe her and divorce her against her will if she refuses to get. So that actually gets very complicated. So one of the key questions here and one of the main arguments that was advanced by Poskim for against telling the husband is he doesn't have to believe you and who said he will believe you and uh, and that actually is one of the main reasons they give in this era, in this case is even more so than the Arif case Postkin really looked for reasons not to have to tell the husband it, it, first of all they, they invoke the notion of covered abrios it would be terribly humiliating for the it would be you know so, it would be socially uh, socially uh, devastating for the for, the, for, for for this to get out for the couple to divorce and the reason would get out so it would be a terrible uh, terrible violation of covered abrios. And in general, the, the post often took the attitude, certainly in the case where everyone was blameless, like in the Sicilianzer's case, or the poor woman, if she didn't know. You know the, so post often did look very hard to find justifications for al Alacha for not telling, and not to break up a marriage, which was healthy uh, for, again, we might have the, the ethical question, so to speak, uh, does the husband have the right to know, does he deserve to know, but, but the primary question discussed by the post is the halachic one. They generally assume that the the marriage remaining intact is objectively a good thing, covered abrios, or for other reasons. And the question is, al does the obligation we have to stop somebody from sinning, does that mean that we have to tell the husband because he is committing an inadvertent avera? And uh, every time he's with his wife, he's doing something, an act that is technically usher, and that uh, we have to tell him. So the basic question of whether covered abrios can justify remaining silent and allowing somebody to do an avera is a machlokis between the Rambam and the Rush. It's based on a Gemara and Brachas, but the, the Rambam and the Rush argue, depending on how they were Gurris in the Gemara, about someone is wearing inadvertently kilayim in the street. His clothing has kilayim. Alpialacha, if he realizes he has kilayim, he has to strip it off right now. Can't wait to get to a changing room or anything. He has to just remove whatever he's wearing in the street. It's very humiliating, but it's too bad. It's an issue you have to take off the garment. The question is, if you see someone else wearing kalayim, he doesn't know, do you have to tell him, sir, you're wearing kalayim, please remove your garment immediately? Again, assuming he'll listen, let's say, should you tell him? So the, the Rambam says, Rambam says yes, the Rambam says that the Gemara has a principle, ein chachma, vein tvuna, vein etzel, and neged Hashem, that when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, kol makum Hashem, when Aveir is involved, kavra brias has to be set aside, and he and 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 you ha- and you tell him that uh, and you tell him and he strips his clothing off 
in the middle of the street. Rambam's language is that you see Kalayim Shaltara, Kalayim Daraisa, Kalayim Drabanan is more lenient, but Kalayim Shaltara, biblical Kalayim, you just tear it off. And then not only do you tell him, you tear it off. That's based on another Gemara later in the discussion, a famous story of uh, vigilanteism. One of the Chachmei Ashas saw a woman who was wearing a certain garment, which was Oster for Jews. He tore it off. She sued him. She, he was fined. A, she turned out she was not Jewish. He was fined a tremendous amount of money. And uh, the Gemara cites this as an example of Yerushalayim and of commitment to, uh, to Hashem that unfortunately is lacking in uh, the present generation, the Gemara said. This type of... Uh, this type of, uh, of committed vigilanteism is unfortunately not as common as it used to be. So the Rambam essentially codifies this Gemara. If someone sees somebody else wearing something that's Osir Midaraisa, you have to stop him, you have to take it off because cover of doesn't matter. Ein Chachma, Ein Tvunav, and Eitzel, and Eged Hashem. The Rush says differently. The Rush says that no, the Gemara distinguishes between Kumvase and Sheval Tasa. If someone who's actively doing the Avera, you have to stop, then, then he's not allowed to do that, even if it's covered abrios. But you, you're just remaining silent. He, by wearing the kalayim, he's actively doing an avera. He would have to take it off, maybe. But you, you're just sitting there, and discretion is the better part of valor. You're simply turning around and ignoring it. You're not doing anything. You're simply not choosing to alert him. So that is b'shev valtasa. So according to the rush, you do not have to tell him. So the starting point of many of the poskim in the case of the adultery is that it should be a machlokus between Rambam and the rush, that according to the Rambam, if that person is doing an Avera, you have to stop him. He's wearing Kalayim. He's being with his wife actively. You have to stop him and say, sir, you can't do this. She's prohibited to you. Going to the rush, you are allowed to simply do nothing. You are allowed to say, despite the fact that but you don't have to actively speak up. If, certainly not a situation of covered abrias. Post can commonly assume that these situations of, uh, of marriages are involved covered abrios, to destroy the marriage would be covered abrios, and therefore many of the posts can allowed, many of the posts can allowed not telling the husband on the grounds of covered abrios based on the rush. Posts can have arguments both ways. Some say covered abrios can only allow a one-time thing, but not an ongoing relationship. They're going to be together for, for years, multiple times. Some say that you only have to disclose, even according to the Rambam, you only have to disclose where he's somewhat at fault. He's a shogig. He should have been more careful. He should have sent his garment to the shotness checker. But in a case where the man is with his wife, what did he do? I mean, he, was, uh, he trusted his wife. He did what he's supposed to do. It's not his fault that his wife, uh, his wife was not faithful. So, you don't, so, then, that, so then you don't have to tell him. If he's an onus gummer, you shouldn't have to tell him. So the, the post can have all, some mentioned as far as we said before, that he doesn't have to believe you, he's not supposed to believe you, he's not allowed to believe you after Ben Gershom's period. So, so the post can have all kinds of spars back and forth, but at the end of the day, again, the bottom line is, normally you're supposed to stop people from doing an Avera, certainly an Avera Daraisa, even if it's a Shogig. Covered Abrios is a mitigating factor, that if there's a, if there's a situation of Covered Abrios, B'Shev Altasa, you're allowed to do nothing, the question is, if he's doing the Avera B'Kum you're going to be simply remaining silent and allowing him to be over B'Kum Vasei. That, uh, that is a famous Machlokas, Rambam and Rush, and much of the later discussion revolves around the application of this dispute between Rambam and Rush to contemporary scenarios to, such as the case of the adultery.